was great. So Pastor Evan sent me a note. That was a couple weeks ago, I guess. He said, please tell me that you're preaching from Daniel 3 on the 12th because I have a perfect song. And I said, yep, I am. And he was right. (laughs) It was perfect. Thank you, guys. Beautiful song. Beautiful. Nice to see uh, Pastor Steve getting in the baptismal tank, huh? Yeah. Comes on board, and not that long, he's already in the water. So he's getting the hang of this really quick, I think. It's working out really well. So I came in this morning, and I checked my email here at the church, and I had a most wonderful and encouraging email message from Deborah Metcalf. Some of you may know her from uh, some years ago. Um, she's known, it, kind of funny, told me all the different people that we've both known, but uh, we've never actually met. But just a very, uh, very kind message. Um, she's been a part of this, uh, she's, she's watching these messages in this series and has been for a little while and just had a real encouraging word to send. And uh, th- that's, that's nice to get an encouraging word every now and then, isn't it? Don't you love it when somebody takes time to do that? So I appreciate that. Deborah. thank you so much for doing that. Um, but it actually reminded me of something else that I thought I'd mention to you. Um, and if you're a person who normally watches online, maybe this would be very relevant to you. We're actually right now engaged in a project where we're going to upgrade um, our uh, streaming capacity. Um, as you know... Yeah, as you know, that everything has moved from a standard definition to an HD, and uh, it's not the kind of thing that you can move, make that adjustment by changing a piece here and changing a piece there over time. I mean, it either all is or it all isn't. And uh, so we're looking at a project to get that done, which is going to cost us around $150,000 or so, but uh, we've already had folks that have uh, donated over $50,000 of it. So... Uh, if you're a person watching or if, if you're here today and, and that's been a blessing to you and you want to participate in that, uh, you can just make a donation any way you want. Just put the AV project on it or you can talk to Patty or, or, or I'd say talk to me, but you should probably talk to the more responsible staff members. Patty's nodding. So, uh, yeah, so we'd appreciate you uh, if you want to be a part of that and we will upgrade that system and... Uh, then we'll be HD. I'm not sure I'm good with that, though. Uh, a little bit of lack of clarity. It doesn't hurt me at all, I don't think. So, all right. Okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this Sabbath day, this chance to be here for the amazing blessing that we've already experienced, uh, for the wonderful, responsive reading that filled our hearts with joy for these songs. Now, Lord, as we turn to your word, open our minds, open our hearts. May we hear your voice speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so last week was kind of heavy, if you were here, because we were, we were talking in Daniel 2, and we were focused on the prophecy portion. And so there was, there was history, and there was dates, and there was details. And so a little bit heavy, but it was incredibly important 
Because this Daniel 2 passage, this vision that God gave Nebuchadnezzar of what is to come, forms the frame for all the chronological prophecies of the Bible. Anything else that's going to happen after this that's a prophecy about how things are going to be in terms of time and context, all has to fit in that frame that we talked about last week. So that's such an important chapter. This week's a little different. This week is a story. Now, we're on week five of this series for the fall. The end is certain. And a point that I want you to understand today is this. We don't always know what's going to happen tomorrow. But from what we know from Daniel 2, at least we know the end is certain. We don't always know about tomorrow, but we know the end is certain, which is significant for us to remember this day after the 14th anniversary of 9-11. We didn't see that coming, did we? We don't always know what tomorrow will bring, but according to Daniel 2, the end is certain. So today's a story, but I want to preface the story with these words. Confessing belief in God through Jesus Christ is not supposed to be a pragmatic, no big deal, don't get carried away kind of choice. Confessing belief in God through Jesus Christ is supposed to be a life or death choice. As in, I would rather die than betray my Lord. So the question is, is that how it is for us? This week will not be as heavy in, in content, but it's very heavy in its implications. You see, the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is supposed to be normal, not unusual. Yet so many of us have lived our spiritual lives almost completely untested, having known the privilege of going our whole lives almost totally unmolested for any of our convictions. It's the blessing of the land we've lived in. But you got to know, what we have experienced is not typical for the history of the world. And in fact, it's not even necessarily typical for all the places in the world right now. I'm not saying you have to die for Jesus to prove your faith. But I am saying you should be willing to. So are you? Am I? Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. It's a little hard to know for sure the conversion factors between Bible measurements and what they are, but the assumption is a cubit's like about 18 inches. So that, that would mean that if that's true, that this image was about 90 feet tall. Now that's big, but not unreasonably big given the fact that in the center of Babylon, archaeological evidence has shown there was a, there was a ziggurat, which was kind of a tiered uh, pyramid kind of structure that was 300 feet tall. So they were building big stuff. And actually, 
90 feet would be a bit shorter than the Colossus of Rhodes, which was another famous giant uh, statue that was built on the island of Rhodes about 300 years later. If you wanted a little scale on this to kind of give you an idea, if, if these figures are right, that would make uh, the, the, the image that he made here about 20 feet shorter than the Statue of Liberty. Not with the base, but the actual Lady Liberty herself. So maybe if she wasn't holding her arm up, that'd be about the right size. So where was this thing? Well, the Bible says it was on the plain of Dura. And this has actually been an interesting challenge for archaeologists uh, to try to come up with exactly where that was. And they haven't been able to find in the record any specific place called that. So it caused some of them to speculate that maybe what this is saying is something else. And I think it's an interesting speculation. Um, when Nebuchadnezzar began to expand Babylon, it was originally an inner city and it had an inner wall around it. But as the city began to expand, and grow in power, he commissioned an outer wall to be built further out around it. As you know, in a walled city, it grows up on the inside, but, but they had built the outer wall and it hadn't completely grown up on the outside yet. And now some are beginning to speculate that this word dur is actually the word of that time for wall. And when you use it in that context, it can mean the wall. So one possible interpretation here is that what he was saying was the plain within the wall. In other words, this thing was built outside that inner wall, but inside that outer wall. And there's a lot that makes sense about that, because then it would be a lot easier to have gathered all the different people in that place, because they were actually right there in the city, uh, for what would transpire. Why did he do it? Well, it's hard to not view Nebuchadnezzar making this image in the context of Daniel chapter 2. Chapter 2 where there's a head of gold, but then that kingdom passes away and, and you've got the different materials. It's hard to not see chapter 3 in the context of that with, with Nebuchadnezzar saying, well, maybe it can go on. And maybe that's because holding on to a throne isn't always easy. Consider who was invited to this event. Verse 2. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. If you weren't invited, you probably should have felt a little bad. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. What better way to solidify your hold on things than to gather everybody that matters for a big grand event where everyone is expected at your word to bow down together in worship? Now, it actually seems there's a certain historical basis to think this might have been what was going on here. You see, in the 1800s, archaeologists were working in the ancient city of Babylon, and they came upon these tablets that have been, uh, come to be called the Babylonian Chronicles. And in these tablets, around the year 595 B.C., these tablets tell of an uprising that took place in the city of Babylon. This would be about the 10th year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. According to the report on these tablets, there was literally a civil war type fighting on the streets of Babylon with the king himself at one point on the street with the sword fighting for his own life. 
It is very possible that the events of chapter 3 take place sometime shortly after this uprising. And what better way to bring about uh, cohesion within your nation than to get everybody together at your command and everyone together bowing down at your command. I suppose after a dream like Daniel 2 where you see that the things are going to fall apart and a rebellion like that if you were Nebuchadnezzar, you just might want to build an image that was all gold, that was all you. It adds a context to the story that I think could explain why Nebuchadnezzar was seemingly so threatened by the implacable stand that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would take. And why a kingdom that didn't normally make a huge deal about who the captive people worshipped would suddenly decree death to anyone who didn't worship as they said. Verse 4, then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down in worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. These furnaces that he's speaking of here were likely brick kilns. They, they would make their bricks out of the clay. They would form them out of the clay and then they would put them in these large kilns. It probably looked like a, a giant beehive kind of shape with a hole at the top. And you would take them in the door and the side, set them in there, and build a massive fire in there. And that's how they fired their bricks. So he says, the music's going to sound, and everybody's going to bow down, and those that don't are going to get thrown into those. I would suspect, I can imagine, they had them set up kind of off to the side in the background so that everybody could see them, just to kind of help with the motivation, if you know what I mean. They could probably see the smoke rising in the background. So what happened? Well, verse 7. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. All right. If one's commitment to his or her Lord is nothing more than a pragmatic one, a, as long as this suits me, I'm committed, or I'll serve God, but I'm sure he wouldn't want me to get killed over it, then one will easily find a host of reasons why this might be a perfect time to bow down. For example, oh, look at that. My sandal came undone. I should probably fix that. Right? Plausible. Or, man, we've been standing out in this hot sun forever. I think I'll just lean over for a second. This is killing me, right? That'd work. Or maybe, yeah, I'm bowing down, but my fingers are crossed. <laughs> you didn't get me. Lord, you know I don't really mean it, but then I'm sure you didn't set me up with a cushy job in the palace just to throw it all away over a stupid misunderstanding. So let's just call what I'm doing appropriate contextualization, right? That's good. That's not what happened. Verse 8, at this time some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. 
Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. All right. Know for certain that should the day come when you must take a righteous stand, there will always be opportunists standing by ready to take you down for what you did. Count on that. Just an aside. You haven't ever been those opportunists, have you? Standing by, rejoicing as your enemies fall, or turning another's misfortune into your personal gain? Be careful that you're never those people. The attitude we need to have is like the one that David had with Saul. You remember how Saul was always bad to David, but David didn't kill him when he could have? That David mourned when Saul died? and later honored his, Saul's grandson to honor his good friend Jonathan. That's how we need to be. But, but let's get back to this story. I love how in this moment, Nebuchadnezzar's counselors kind of try to imply blame back on Nebuchadnezzar here. This is great. Verse, verse 12, but there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. See, they were a little mad about the fact that these young guys came in and all of a sudden they got promoted to all these positions of power and they're like, yeah, see, that was dumb. Should have stuck with the faithful people. See what they did? Well, the king is quick to respond and you can understand if this was an environment where there had been rebellion recently, you just can't tolerate this. I mean, the whole point of this exercise is to showcase the king's power. Defiance cannot be tolerated. Verse 13, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Now, in one sense, Nebuchadnezzar is actually being kind of gracious here. I mean, he has the witnesses who told him they didn't do the right thing. He could have thrown them straight in, but you, you kind of wonder if he saw them and he thought, oh, I like these guys, they're smart. I'm going to give them another go. So he says, maybe you all misunderstood what I meant. I'm going to give you one more chance here. Try it again. But isn't it interesting? See, Nebuchadnezzar had this problem. He, he would always end up challenging God. He does it again. At the end, he says, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? All right. 
The course of events so far in this story, I believe, is fairly typical of what transpires whenever we find ourselves in a scenario where some external authority is seeking to force us into an action that goes against our conscience. We're going to see a similar development take place when we're in chapter 6, the story of Daniel and the lion's den. But this is how these kinds of things often transpire. While minding our own business, someone, either by design or accident, creates a situation where we are forced to stand on principle. Then the initial moment of truth comes, and in that moment we make a decision. We're either faithful or unfaithful. Both of these choices come with consequences. Externally, if we're unfaithful, if we say, ooh, nah, nah, not this time, and we just kind of sink back, we don't cause any ripples, and it seems as though everything goes forward. But if we take our stand for principle, okay, now there's likely going to be trouble. Both choices come with consequences, with penalties, but I think the worst is what happens inside of us when we compromise our principles and convictions and deny our God. Nothing at all may happen around us, but we then enter that private hell that happens on the inside when we know we didn't live up to what we believe. But let's assume we stand for what we believe while the others bow. We can be sure there will always be someone standing nearby ready to turn us in for our apparent unfaithfulness. And that's what brings about the next issue. Then comes the direct confrontation with the authority. And this becomes the greatest moment of intimidation. This is how it went for the three friends. When you're in this situation, everything you say and do in the moments that follow that moment will make all the difference between who gets glorified. If in that moment of confrontation, when you come up against the authority and the intimidation is upon you, if in that moment you bow, then you have given the glory to that authority. But if in that moment you stand, then you've given the glory to God. Here's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. It's the perfect answer. They say, you know what, we appreciate the second chance, but don't bother. Our fight isn't with you, king, even though your fight is with us. Our God can deliver. We have no doubt about that because he is greater than you. But even if our God lets us be consumed in the flames, we would consider it an honor to die for his honor. 
and we will never worship your gods nor this foolish image that you've erected. That's their answer. You see, when you truly know how good your God is, how awesome and amazing and beautiful, then the thought of worshiping anything else will appall you. You'd rather burn. But be warned. Your stand may enrage others, causing them to do crazy things. Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. Changed from, I'm going to kill you, to, I'm going to kill you. I don't know. I mean, apparently it got worse. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. Really? Seven times hotter? Because the normal temperature at which a person would instantly die just isn't hot enough? Great idea. Yet, watch how God uses this raging excess of the king to make his deliverance all the more miraculous. Verse 21, so these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these three men firmly tied fell into the blazing furnace. So he heats it up seven times hot so that it's so hot that the heat's coming out of it, the flames are coming out of it, and these big strong soldiers grab these three guys and throw them in, but it's so hot that the flame kills the guys on the backside, on the outside. So there's no chance when this is over anybody can say, well, maybe it wasn't really all that hot in there after all. No, it was hot in there because the guys on the outside died. And it's fascinating to me, there's a background story of faithfulness that takes place in this moment. These are particularly strong soldiers who are willing to give up their own lives at the king's command that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be thrown in there. So here's a question. If these soldiers could be so committed to their human king that they would die to carry out his orders, even though obedience to the human king promised nothing after their death, shouldn't we be even the more committed to our divine King Jesus, even to the point of death? He is far more awesome than any human king, and doesn't our divine King Jesus say, I am the resurrection and the life? Nebuchadnezzar never made that promise. I'm reminded of Jesus' words in Luke chapter 12, verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. When we look at all of these things from a merely human perspective, the three friends appear crazy to not give in to the king. And if all we use is a human perspective, 
then we will never be anything more than pragmatic believers ready to betray our God and then count on his mercy anytime it suits our situation. You know what I mean? Oh, Lord, I'm sorry. I just, I just can't make a stand on that today. You understand, right? You forgive me. Betray your God and then count on his mercy. Is that who we want to be? I thank God these young men were not like this. And because they weren't, they received by means of their faithful action one of the most iconic deliveries in all the Bible. Watch what happens next. Watch how because of their faithfulness, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was able to turn what was designed to be a day for glorifying a human king into a day of glorifying the God of heaven. Verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that, were tied up and, that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Now the text doesn't tell us who this fourth being in the flames was, but I know who I think it was. I'm going with saying the one in the flame there is the one who has always promised to be us when we pass through the fire. Indeed, I'm going to guess that that one in the flame was the one who came to save us from the final judgment fire that is to come upon the earth. I'm going to say it was Jesus walking with them. Now watch what happens. Now we find out exactly why all those leaders had actually been assembled that day. Here's what's crazy about this story. Once more we see a pagan king unwittingly accomplishing God's purpose. Verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And look at this. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched. And there was no smell of fire on them. Nebuchadnezzar had brought everyone that mattered together that day for the purpose of having himself glorified. But God stole Nebuchadnezzar's day by means of three friends who refused to bow to any other god. Nebuchadnezzar thought that on this day he would be the receiver of praise. But that's not what happened. Look at this. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He thought he'd be the receiver of praise. Turned out he was the giver of praise. Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command. He's now commending them for defying him. 
Can God turn things around or what? They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Do you remember the lesson we learned from how Daniel and his friends responded to the crisis in chapter 2? We said, don't panic, pray, and then bring the praise. Well, I want to suggest to you it happens again in chapter 3. Clearly, they don't panic. You can tell by the answer they give the king. And while there's no exact record in the text that says they prayed, if you've ever been in a similar situation like that, you know how you're praying on the inside. And after the deliverance, where does the praise come from? Well, from King Nebuchadnezzar. And then from all the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officers. Here's how the story finishes, verse 28. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Have you ever longed to be a hero of the faith like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? You will never get the chance to become a channel through which the surpassing glory of God is revealed to an unbelieving or confused world if you refuse to stand for God in times of challenge and times of trouble. If the three of them had found a reason to bow down that day, we would never know this story. So we go back to where we started. Confessing belief in God through Jesus Christ is not supposed to be a pragmatic, no big deal, don't get carried away kind of choice. Confessing belief in God through Jesus Christ is supposed to be a life or death choice. As in, I would rather die than deny my Lord. Is that how it is for us? We've been reading the book of Hebrews at home for family worship, and recently we finished chapter 11. That's the faith chapter, the one that talks about all the heroes of the Bible. And in fact, even this story is referenced in this chapter. But after it comes these words at the beginning of chapter 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, 
You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So I don't know for sure what the future holds for us. This series isn't the days ahead are certain. This series is the end is certain. What exactly lies between where we are and the end is likely no more clear to us today than the immediate future was clear to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego the day they took their stand. There could come a point where professing our faith becomes a life or death issue. But as I mentioned a moment ago, confessing belief in God through Jesus Christ is supposed to be a life or death issue. Would we rather die than deny our Lord? Don't scare yourself with this. Instead, take the advice of Hebrews 12. Just keep looking at Jesus, the one who was willing to die for you, the one who walked in the flames with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I promise you, whatever may lie in the days ahead before the end, he will be with us all the way to the certain end. Let's pray. Father in heaven, today we put our trust in Jesus. We confess before you, Lord, the times where we have shrunk back from standing for our convictions and standing for you. Lord, we pray that you will prepare our hearts to be faithful should a day of trial find us, that we will stand in faith for you courageously, more willing to face the flames than to face the thought that we had betrayed you. Let this be reality for us. We pray in the name of the one who died for us, Jesus our Lord. Amen.